Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From our brand new studio, it is the Masson All Access Podcast brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Paul Mancano here with you as always. Got a great podcast for you. Coming up, we're going to have Will DeBoer, who is the broadcaster for the Delmarva Shorebirds, to talk about Adam Hall, one of our 20 in 20s. And then later on, we're going to have the coach of Nick Gonzalez at New Mexico State. That's Mike Kirby. Gonzalez is a potential top five pick and could be taken number two overall by the Baltimore Orioles in next Wednesday's draft. But first, we're going to kick things off with the Orioles supervisor of domestic scouting operations, Brad Selick. Now we bring on Orioles Supervisor of Domestic Scouting Operations, Brad Selick, who joins us via Zoom with his dog potentially barking in the background, but we're going to hear his voice in there as well. Brad, thanks so much for hopping on here. Thanks for having me, Paul. So you have been full-time with the Orioles for, since 2013 now, and obviously within the past year plus, about a year and a half now, um, the Orioles front office has up gone, overgone major changes. Uh, what have you seen in terms of the scouting department and the overall front office? How has it changed under Mike Elias and Sigma Dell? Yeah, so I think the first thing that really comes to mind is just the exposure to all the information, uh, analytic, decision-making driven, um, and technology that Sig and Mike have you know, implemented throughout the organization. And obviously scouting, uh, has been, you know, immersed in that as well. So I think would say that, you know, ever since they came on board, we're a lot more efficient. The technology and tools we have at our disposal, we did not have previously. And as a result, it's uh, made major impacts on our decision-making, not only with scouting, but in all facets of baseball operations. And in terms of the draft and, and this year's draft in particular, we're going to get to the strange circumstances surrounding this year's draft, but for a normal draft, how many months out, what, what point in a calendar year would you say you really in earnest begin preparing for an upcoming draft? Yeah, so our scouts are always on the lookout for players, you know, not only for this draft class, but also for guys that, you know, might be eligible down the road, whether they're high school uh, or guys, you know, just in general, we kind of follow throughout their high school career and our underclassmen at colleges. But, you know, right after the draft, there's showcases and events that start up about, you know, five to seven days right after. And after we draft them, you know, our scouts are back out on the road and they're working already on the next year's class, uh, typically about five to seven days right after the draft ends. It's a quick turnaround. And in terms of this year, having to pull those scouts from the road, how difficult was that uh, to, to undergo that kind of process with these guys that are used to a life on the road and a life watching baseball in person, and now they have to transition to watching things at home and on video? Yeah, you know, that that has been um, a little bit of a speed bump, you know, along the way in this. But I will give credit to all of our entire staff um, and how they adjusted the transition. It is a little bit different because typically over the course of the spring, you see guys that make leaps and bounds and climb draft boards because of their performance. And now we're essentially relying on four weeks worth of video and essentially their track record from previous years, whether it's a college or over the summer if they're high school kids. So 
there was a little bit of an adjustment period, but again, I think that overall as a group, we responded really well and I'm pleased with the outcome. So, um, you know, even though it is a little bit different as far as how we've you know gotten to the point where we are now, you know, I think we're well prepared and we'll be ready in about a week when it's time to line them up and make our selections. Is it difficult not to overemphasize the little sample size you got in 2020? So if you see a starting pitcher in college make only four starts in 2020 or a player play about 15 or 20 games this season, do you have to keep in the back of your mind the importance of sample size, uh, even though it is the most recent sample, um, to kind of make sure that you're not overemphasizing, you know, this, this smaller sample size that you got in the spring? Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, that kind of speaks to, again, going back to the track record, you guys, what were these guys previously before the start of the spring? And also that's where we rely heavily on Sig Dell and Mike Weiss in our analytics department to essentially kind of carve out and, you know, put together projections and essentially saying, okay, you know, what do we think potentially this guy would have done, you know, based upon his past performance and, you know, how he was trending when things shut down. So you're right. It's a balancing act and, you know, we kind of have to take both things into account. And when you have a guy who's, who was injured, whether in the spring or in 2019, he was bouncing back from injury. Is it more difficult to evaluate that this year as it might be in previous years, because you have such a lack of information and, you know, if a guy was maybe scheduled to come back by this point and there's no baseball to come back to, is it tough to evaluate his health at this point? It's not easy to assess. You're absolutely right in that regard. You know, Major League Baseball has done a really good job as far as offering, you know, a medium for these guys to upload footage on. So if we do have some guys that are coming back from injury and they kind of want to show all 30 clubs, you know, this is where they are now. They have the ability to upload video to them, you know, fielding ground balls, throwing, taking some swings. So, again, it's not obviously ideal. We'd much rather be at the ballpark and analyze these guys and, you know, talk to them. But um, essentially, we just have to kind of make do with what we have. And, you know, it's a good medium, and we've tapped into that regularly down the stretch here. What kind of mediums do you use to catch up with a player um, and kind of conduct the interviews behind the scenes? Because, you know, obviously makeup and competitiveness um, are all important when evaluating draft prospects, especially near the top of the draft, like the Orioles with the number two overall pick. How do you conduct those kind of interviews? Is it just a, a whole lot of time spent on Zoom or do you take the time to uh, to reach out to guys, you know, on the phone? How do you get that behind the scenes look into who these guys are? Yeah, you know, we've kind of cast a wide net in that regard. We're talking to a lot of guys, not only for their first top three selection, the top 40 picks, but also through all five rounds. And to your point, this is probably, you know, my about 45th or 46th Zoom call that I've done. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm talking to you and Instead of me questioning and getting, you know, to talk to players, but you know, we uh, we're pretty thorough as far as our makeup is concerned. You know, we want those guys that have that edge to them that you know can't stomach losing because ultimately those are the type of guys that we need to be wired in that fashion or to turn this thing around. So, at the same token, you want guys that are going to be coachable and you know are willing to you know put their best foot forward, you know, between the lines and also off the field. So. It's a, it's a nice balance that we're looking for as far as guys that are driven, have that edge, you know, have that hunger and desire to win, but also the guys that are going to be listened and, you know, um, are looking to essentially better themselves and improve themselves each day in and day out with our player development coach staff. And there's always going to be less information available for some of the high school guys than there might be for the college guys just because of the amount of years under their belt for the college guys. 
How much of a gap is there when you talk about a high school junior to a high school senior? Is that jump typically bigger than the, the jump that a college sophomore to a college junior might make um, just because of their age and the kind of physical maturity they're undergoing at 17 as opposed to 20 or 21? In most cases, yeah. I mean, every now and then, you know, we will have the guys that we see over the summer and then they take quantum leaps forward, you know, and an excellent example of that is Grayson Rodriguez um, a couple of years ago. We saw him at the area code games. You know, we did like some things that he did. Uh, and then the velo just took off in the spring and, you know, Orioles fans and, you know, a lot of um, a lot of minor league fans that have visited minor league ballparks have seen, you know, what he's become under the tutelage of, you know, Chris Holt and our pitching coaches. So, yeah, that is typically the case. Um, more than likely, we'll see that leap with guys going from their summer year and then spring and their senior season. And, you know, typically right around, you know, uh, late February, March into, into April, those guys start to take off. And because of that lack of information and the lack of games being played this spring, do you expect there to be more uh, college players taken in this draft than there might be in the first five rounds of previous drafts? I, I You know, I would say that the industry is probably trending that way based upon, you know, the chatter and, again, the lack of track record with some of these high school players. But not only that, the fact that not many of these high school kids got their seasons underway when this thing shut down. A lot of kids in the northern states, the Midwest, didn't even really, you know, get an inning under their belt. So, unfortunately, they are kind of at a disadvantage in that way. Um, but I will say that, you know, we are not necessarily shying away from those type of players. We're open to taking any demographic of player. We feel like we've put a lot of work in on those high school guys that we do like. And, you know, ultimately, if we're in a position to take them, you know, we will essentially uh, look at that very seriously. And uh, near the top of the draft, it has, at least from what we have heard from um, uh, the third party and the media perspective, it tends to be a little bit college heavy, especially with that top five. Would you, because of that, be maybe the import, given the importance of that second overall pick, would you be more inclined to take a college player where you just have more knowledge and database on as opposed to a high school player, given the, the level of importance with that number two overall pick? You know, I think that might, people might answer that question differently. Uh, my mindset is you always want to take the best guy, whether that, you know, the best player, period, whether he's high school or college. Um, you know, I will say this, you know, Michael Ice and Sig Meidel have, have essentially done this in multiple stops and have done it successfully. And they have a track record of drafting, you know, both high school and college players at the top of the draft and, you know, watching those guys blossom into impact players at the major league level. So I think what Mike and Sig do a great job of here is they do a good job of taking everything into account. You know, they'll listen to the scouts, what they see between the lines when they're out of the park. And then they'll also weigh that based on the analytics and the driven data. Um, you know, so I would say that ultimately, depending upon who you ask, but my perspective is you always want to take the best player, whether or not it's a high school or college player. And we're kind of sitting through that right now as a group. So, uh, we have a lot of work left to do with about a week left, but you know, I don't think that we're necessarily slanted towards one direction or the other at this point in time. With about a week left before the draft and that number two overall pick sitting in your possession, how many names would you say at this point it's down to? Uh, for the competition for that number two overall pick in your mind? I would say probably in my mind, it's about five or six. And again, Mike and Sig and others in our organization that are involved in this process might have a, a different number in mind. But, you know, based upon the conversations and dialogues that we're having on a day-to-day basis with our scouts, our front office, our analytics team, I would say fairly confident it's about five to six names. Okay. Um, and um, 
what else can you tell us about this draft class uh, beyond the fact that we know it is probably going to be a little bit college heavy? Is there a more uh, depth in terms of pitching than there was in last year's class, given that there was there were very few pitchers taken in the first uh, 10, 20 picks? Um, and what other aspects of this draft do you think stand out to you? Yeah, I would say that there's an abundance of pitching available at the college level. There's a lot of Friday night guys, whether they're ACC arms, SEC arms, you know, and there's just a tremendous amount of depth where, you know, depending upon who you ask, in my opinion, last year, there just wasn't that amount of depth as far as college starting pitching is concerned. And there's also, you know, guys that are kind of, you know, uh, at mid-major schools, I guess I should say, are smaller schools and smaller conferences that, you know, check a lot of those boxes. So um, it should be interesting to kind of see how, you know, the chips fall about a week from now when everyone's making their selections. But I also think that there's also some very polished college hitters in this class. Uh, I think, you know, looking back at the collegiate national team with Team USA, a lot of those names on the roster are going to go in the first, you know, 30 to 35 selections. So overall, it's a very solid year from the college ranks. But there are also some high school pitchers and uh, high school bats that, you know, could be impact players down the road. So overall, even though we only got about four to five weeks in the spring, it's a very healthy class in terms of depth. So there should be some good players for us when we line them up and make our first three selections in the top 40 picks. And when those selections are made and the, the five rounds are done with, obviously every team will have an opportunity to potentially sign guys for a max amount of $20,000. When you have a cap like that, what kind of factors do you think might influence a guy who is looking to sign with a team knowing that you know they can only get a certain amount? So what, what do you think they might look for when they're looking for a team to sign with? Obviously, every, you know, um, player's situation is different, uh, potentially, you know, who might be coming in as far as recruits, um, underclassmen, but also the fact that, you know, depending upon the player, some of these guys are maybe just looking to start their professional career. They want to go out and get started. And, you know, as far as our process is that, you know, we've, we have a lot of guys that we liked, you know, initially for the draft when it was 40 rounds and then 10 rounds and now five. So, you know, we're not taking anything for granted. We're essentially going out and talking to a lot of these guys that, you know, potentially are in our mix for the fifth, sixth round, if there was a sixth round. And, you know, we're still treating this entire process let you know, in basically that we're going to draft them. So um, we are prepared for that process. And we'll ultimately just have to see, you know, after the draft and after the quiet period, essentially who wants to come out and play. And, you know, the one thing I will say about our player development system, you know, uh, under Matt Blood and Chris Holt is that, you know, the feedback from guys that we had drafted last year has been very favorable as far as, you know, um, putting the work in and working with those guys. And, um, you know, I think that will speak volumes to the guys that are looking to start their careers. And hopefully that should give us a leg up. Yeah, I can imagine you would have a lot of confidence going into a pitch that you might be making uh, with a player after the draft. We're about a week now away from the draft in the home stretch. How much sleep are you getting per night at this point? And how excited um, are you for the first night of the draft a week from today? Yeah, I'm not getting too much sleep, but, um, you know, that's typical for this time of year. I think if you ask a lot of people involved in this process, they're not getting a whole lot of sleep. Um, very excited. Again, I think that, you know, the one thing that we've prided ourselves on, you know, over the last few years here is just being prepared. And uh, I think that, you know, we've done our due diligence. We know this draft class very well, in spite of the fact that we've only had four to five weeks. And we're excited to line them up and make our selections. So um, really stoked to be able to add some impact players, especially when you have you know, four selections in the top 100 and then another one right outside the top 100. 
one more question. Is it going to be strange to, to be not in the warehouse and just on at home on the phone or on Zoom with the rest, with Mike Elias, Sigma Dell, and the rest of the front office and having those conversations over technological platforms as opposed to in person when you guys are sitting there on the clock with these picks to make? It definitely has been a, a different feel, that's for certain. And it will probably be a little bit strange, you know. Uh, that's a good question to ask. And as far as preparing for that, you know, we went ahead and actually reached out to the Ravens um, and a couple other NFL teams just to get a feel for how that process went. So, you know, we have uh, contingency plans in place in case, you know, there's techno- uh, technology issues, but ultimately we'll be prepared. It'll just be a little bit different. So, um, but yeah, we'll be ready either way. Sounds good. I can't wait to uh, to see who you guys select, obviously, with that number two overall pick. And then the, the total of six picks being made in those five rounds. Uh, exciting next week for uh, the Orioles franchise as a whole. But thank you so much, Brad Selick, for joining us here on Mass and All Access. Thanks, Paul. Now we bring in Will DeBoer on the Mass and All Access podcast, who is the broadcaster of the Delmarva Shorebirds. Will, thanks so much for hopping on here. One of the better setups I've seen in terms of Zoom backgrounds. Every inch of your walls appears to be covered in your background. Well, Paul, I I hate white walls. I can't stand white walls of any way, shape, or form, so I decided that uh, the best aesthetic would be your your typical Applebee's. (laughs) That's a good way to put it, but it's it's classier than an Applebee's, I feel like. So, you know, that's, which is, is, I mean, to be fair, a low bar to set, but still, you're not a sponsor, right? Yeah, no, not a sponsor. Um, well, I, I want to get your thoughts on the 20 in 20s because we've been doing this series highlighting 20 players in the Orioles system to keep your eye on in 2020 and beyond. And Adam Hall is our very last one. It is in no particular order, so it's not a slight to Adam at all. He is an incredibly exciting prospect in the Orioles system, the number 13 overall prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, a speedster. He's young, but he's got one of the more interesting stories in terms of how he got to the Orioles system um, he's from Bermuda originally, but spent some time growing up in Ontario. What can you tell us about the way that he came into the Orioles system and the unique path he took to get to pro baseball? Well, I think the fact that he came from uh, such a remote outpost, not just of baseball, but of the world, uh, gives him a chip on his shoulder. You know, he moved to Canada specifically so that he could develop his baseball skills and get better and perhaps uh, come to America and make it as a, a professional ball player. So you've got a, an incredibly determined young man uh, from the onset. I mean, I remember when I was like a 12 years old uh, and, and I was not that. I was not uh, saying, hey, let me move to another country so I can pursue uh, my long-term goals. So he had that drive coming in. And then uh, last year, his first full season was with us in Delmarva. He finished one hit shy of uh, hitting 300 for the season. It was just that last day he had a line drive. If it was uh, three feet higher, he would have had a 300 average. But ended up top five in the South Atlantic League in several categories. And just as a 19-year-old. So he's got really great skills already. And, you know, it's only going to develop even more and add to that all the – uh, outside factors that were going on last year for him and uh, his family. And it, it was really one of the more remarkable seasons I'll bet anybody had in the Orioles system. Yeah, I think uh, the Orioles certainly did a great job shedding some light on on that uh, story that was going on throughout the entire 2019 season. But for those who don't know, um, what can you share with us about the story between him and his dad and his dad throwing out the first pitch at a game midseason? 
um, and how that kind of progressed as the season went along? Well, uh, and Adam kept track of uh, his father's condition throughout the entire season. He actually missed the all-star game in West Virginia so that he could go up north and, and be with him. And then it was late July. Uh, we brought uh, Tyler down for a strikeout cancer night, and he got to throw out the first pitch on the field to his son uh, while the Shorebirds were wearing special strikeout cancer jerseys. And uh, all this was done with the idea that they wanted to give Tyler one last chance to see uh, his son Adam play in person, which it turns out that uh, was one of the last times he passed away within the last couple of months. But and for Adam, for a 19-year-old kid to go through all of that and to carry the weight of an organization that is in rebuilding mode on his shoulders, I mean, my goodness, what more could you ask of, of a young man? Yeah, absolutely. Well put. I mean, that was a, um, a tragic story. Um, especially with his passing uh, within the past couple months. I was always struck in the few conversations I had with Adam, uh, his maturity. Um, he, you know, I'm sure you got to see that on a day in and day out basis um, and the way that he carried himself on the field as well. Still a very young guy on a, on a winning team um, and to carry the load on the field as well. The offense that he produced, a speedster, he had 33 stolen bases um, he was kind of moved around in the lineup, was laid off some nights, was moved down in the lineup. Um, but he seemed to be a, a real weapon for Kyle Moore. Just pretty much wherever he put him in the lineup, he could produce offensively. And when he got on base, he could advance pretty quickly. Yeah, he was the most consistent hitter that we had uh, throughout the season. Uh, a lot of our uh, hitters who uh, excelled were brought up to Frederick. Uh, Adam was here all year long. I'm sure that just spoke to how young he was. And, uh, you know, he was very businesslike. Uh, he had an incredibly level head uh, for not just a 19-year-old, but for any prospect. Uh, got in his uh, reps at shortstop and then a second base at the beginning of the season when Caden Grenier was uh, still with Delmarva. But once Grenier went up to Frederick, Adam took shortstop basically full-time, and he really excelled in it. And uh, you mentioned it. He's got speed. He uh, set the a tone at the top of the lineup really well. And he always seemed to be able to, to find the open greenery whenever the shorebirds really needed a hit. And uh, considering how well the shorebirds did uh, last season, you know, he, he found the open greenery quite a bit. He's a guy that has a little bit smaller stature. He's just stands about just six feet, which works in terms of his defensive position at shortstop. But could you see as he goes on through higher levels of the organization, uh, his size potentially being a hindrance as he gets further? Or do you think that just the style of player, a slap hitter who can find the gap and has kind of some kind of gap to gap power? Do you see that not being a problem as he rises through the levels of the organization? I don't see it as a problem so much. The The issue that he might run into is uh, simply the depth that the Orioles have at the shortstop position right now. You've got Mason McCoy, who passed through Delmarva a couple of years ago and will probably end up seeing some time in uh, AAA this season. you got uh, Caden Grenier, who was his infield mate for uh, the first part of the season. And you've got him. So between the three of them, you've got uh, potentially a shortstop of the future in Camden Yards. It's just going to be a matter of who stays at the shortstop position and who uh, looks at that uh, gaggle of shortstops and says, okay, maybe I ought to try something else. And that'll give me uh, the edge to take an end around and make it to Camden Yards that way. I think I know the answer to this question, but let's say that 2020 were a normal season. 
I'm guessing you wouldn't be expecting to see Adam Hall back in the Delmarva area, the Salisbury area, to start the season. Where do you think he would be starting his season, assuming 2020 were a normal year? He would have gone to Frederick, no doubt. He had nothing to prove, uh, nothing left to prove here at Delmarva. I think the Orioles uh, would have started him in Frederick, maybe kept him in Frederick for the entirety of a regular 2020 season, just because he would have been 20 years old in the Carolina League. But it would have been a great challenge for him to be one of the younger guys in advance day. And I think it's a challenge that he would have been able to uh, uh, step up and uh, really take in and excel. Well, considering how great that Delmarva Shorebirds team was in 2019 with 90 wins, uh, setting all kinds of records, I expect that Adam Hall would be one of many guys in 2020 moving his way up through the Orioles organization. One of the guys who already got a call up was not a player, but the manager, Kyle Moore, getting the job with the Frederick Keys before the season started. What can you tell us about the job Kyle did with Delmarva to earn that promotion and then the new guy that you have coming in to Salisbury? Oh, the camo seemed like every button he pressed went right for him. And if you win 90 games in a, what ended up being a 138-game season, I mean, that's that's a big doy. But uh, uh, the, the players really bought into his approach. He was a really personable manager. Uh, he clicked with uh, everybody. And I, I can't remember there ever being a, a blow-up in the clubhouse or, or anything of that sort. So you had uh, players who just completely bought in to what uh, Kyle uh, was serving up there as Delmarva manager. And it helped to have uh, a couple of really good uh, young coaches with him as well. And he's going to do a fine job in, in Frederick if we end up having the season up there. Uh, the new guy, we've got Dave Anderson, who's been a, a, a rover in the Orioles system for uh, several years. He's been a minor league manager off and on for a long time. And he was the third base coach of the Texas Rangers when they won back-to-back American League pennants about a decade ago. Uh, Dave, uh, older guy, and he's uh, staffed uh, with a bunch of uh, younger hitting coaches and pitching coaches, and I think he's going to be the sort of guy who can bring it all together, whereas the last couple of years the Shorebirds have had a young manager and some older coaches to sort of uh, provide the uh, sage-like role. It's going to inverse this year where you've got uh, younger coaches and a manager in Dave Anderson who's going to be able to be the wily old veteran and tie it all together. So I'm really looking forward to – meeting him on, on a formal uh, managerial uh, presence and uh, seeing what he's able to do here in Salisbury. And one of the guys that uh, on the field that you got an introduction to last year was, of course, Adley Rutschman, who spent his final few games of the 2019 season with you guys in Salisbury, got to play in the playoffs in those games. It was a crazy year for Adley, starting in college ball, and then starting, you know, his pro career down in Florida in the Gulf Coast League, working his way up through Aberdeen and then eventually to Delmarva. So, so much was thrown at this kid um, in 2019. But in the few games that you did get to see him behind the plate and in those playoff games, what did you see from the Orioles' former number one overall pick? Well, this young man is absolutely the real deal, and he has earned every bit of accolades that have come his way. What I saw in that first game was the strongest catcher's arm I had seen in my three years with Delmarva. He threw out a really speedy Greensboro base runner trying to steal second base in that game like it was nothing. He flexed that arm quite a few times in the two weeks that we had him. Uh, once he settled in and you know, think about all the whirlwind that it was for him last year to go from Oregon State to 
Gulf Coast League, the average in Delmarva, he, he barely got a chance to have anywhere to hang his hat. And, and he had to manage all the, the fan expectations and, and, and the autograph seekers and all that. But once he was able to get his sea legs in Delmarva, he uh, flexed the power as well, hit a couple of Titanic home runs. And those playoff games, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a crapshoot when it's a two out of three series. And we were facing the second best team in the league in uh, the Hickory Crawdads. But Adley, uh, almost single-handedly, uh, brought us to a game three. He had both hits in game two, which was a uh, one nothing uh, loss for us in 10 innings. He had an RBI single in that uh, first game in Hickory. He threw out another base runner in the ninth inning of uh, game two uh, in Salisbury. So this guy is a pressure performer. And, you know, the fans ask all the time in the offseason, do you think he's going to start in Delmarva again next year? And and uh, I just had to shake my hand and say, no, no, there's no. We were lucky to have him for as long as we did, but I think he's got nothing left to prove at this level. And he'll uh, be in uh, Frederick, maybe even Bowie, once we get this thing going. Yeah, it seemed like pretty much wherever he was sent, he struggled within the first two or three games, and that was about it. Then he flipped a switch, figured out what <laughs> what the kind of level of competition and the kind of players he was facing, and then immediately turned it on. Um, in terms of this time, this has been a very strange time for everybody and a difficult time, of course, without baseball. Um, but how are you... Uh, I, I've always talked about how broadcasters you know, hold, have multiple hats in the minor leagues, especially... Um, but during this difficult time without baseball, and there was so much excitement coming into the 2020 season, especially for the Delmarva Shorebirds, how are you filling that time um, by keeping fans excited about baseball and reminding them that you guys are right there and that uh, baseball hopefully uh, will return at some point? Well, at this point, content creation is all we've got in terms of fan engagement. So my job and the job of our marketing director here is to remind people that uh, we still exist and we will <laughs> still exist when baseball comes back uh, into the fold and that we're going to need everybody's help uh, once it does. Uh, we've been putting out uh, something pretty much every weekday and, and on the weekends as well. We've got uh, a team podcast that already started, uh, One Flew Over the Shorebird's Nest, or we've had uh, various guests related to the team. We've been doing video highlight packages from last year, and it helps when you have a 90-win season to, to build on. You've got a lot of highlights, and you can stretch that quite a bit. Uh, we've got written pieces. We had our uh, Shorebird's 25th anniversary team that we unveiled over the past couple of months, and now we're doing a series on uh, baseball legends of the Eastern Shore of Maryland, not just Delmarva, but uh, really, really old school guys like Home Run Baker and uh, Jimmy Fox and, and folks like that. We've been uploading some uh, classic games from last year onto our team SoundCloud account, the uh, Raw uh, Radio Play-by-Play, and uh, we've been doing you know, various other things. We've got virtual happy hours that happen every now and then. Uh, we've got one coming up this Thursday with uh, Gary Kendall, who was a manager at basically every level in this system, but he was with us uh, from 05 through 07. So we've, we've got stuff to uh, keep the shorebirds fresh in people's minds. And uh, really, that, that's all we can do at this point. And the same way the players are, are being told to uh, be ready at a minute's notice, uh, so are we. And I got to say, I'm a big fan of mascot content. And the Delmarva Shorebirds have some of the best mascot content that I've, I've seen of any minor league team, frankly. So that, that presence has been very strong, I can say, from my end. In terms of you personally, besides decorating your walls, Will, how are you spending this time without baseball? 
Well, missing every little thing, even the eight or nine hour bus rides uh, that come with the territory of being a Northern Block team in the South Atlantic League. But uh, I've been finding ways to distract myself. There's a city park about five minutes away from where I live, and I go and try and walk there a couple of times a week. I've been reading, uh, finished a James Mishner novel uh, earlier this month, uh, working on a Tom Petty biography right now, Uh, watching television. Brooklyn Nine-Nine was my... uh, Nice uh, show the last couple of months, and I'm looking always looking for new content there. But really, it's uh, you know every day feels like an off day coming back from some place like Charleston or Asheville, and it's a strange feeling knowing that uh, this day is going to be the exact same as it is tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and 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 now I and I think I know how Bill Murray felt when he was filming Groundhog Day. Yeah, exactly. Well, at some point we will get baseball back. And we will get the Delmarva Shorebirds back with a brand new manager um, and an exciting new group of youngsters coming through there with a, a brand new fresh Orioles draft class coming within the next couple months. So all kinds of exciting things on the horizon for the Delmarva Shorebirds. Will, honestly, thank you so much for taking the time. We all have time on our hands now, but we appreciate the time nonetheless. Uh, Paul, thanks for having me and all the best to you uh, throughout this whole thing. And if there's one thing we say here on Delmarva Shorebirds, fly together. (laughs) Sounds good. Will DeBoer, broadcaster for the Delmarva Shorebirds. Well, one of the names you're going to hear over the next week or so in preparation for the MLB draft, that would be Nick Gonzalez, infielder for New Mexico State. Now we are joined by New Mexico State head coach Mike Kirby, who joins us. Mike, thanks so much for hopping on. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So you are new to this New Mexico State program, um, but you had a little bit of experience on the other side when it comes to Nick Gonzalez. What can you tell us about your introduction to this guy when you were at Nebraska prior to the 2020 season? Well, funny you should ask that. Uh, Yeah, we had a schedule. We had a series scheduled with the Aggies at Nebraska, and it got snowed out. We couldn't get the snow off the field. So uh, we start looking around for, you know, local fields, high school fields even. And we found a field, and it was all turf, and we probably could have played. It would have been cold. And I marched into Coach Erstad's office and said, hey, man, they're going to hit, I don't know, 15 home runs. Nick's going to hit 10. The field's too little. So, And he said, really? And I went back and looked at video and showed him video. And, yeah, man, he's real. He's real. That was my first interaction with Nick Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has put up video game-like numbers uh, in his short time at New Mexico State. You are introduced to the program mere months ago, and he got a small introduction to him when he was under you. It's just 16 games, but in those 16 games, he hit almost 450. Obviously, a high altitude uh, playing out there, uh, but in terms of the production... He's, he has it in spades, and it looked like he was off to an outstanding start in 2020. Yeah, matter of fact, I just got off the phone with Nick congratulating on the National Player of the Year Award and um, just got off the phone with him. And I said, you know, my only bummer was I didn't get to see you for a full season because I truly believe he would have hit 30 home runs. <laughs> wow. And, I mean, and that's getting pitched around, and I don't. that's hard to do. I don't care what you're out. I don't care about anything. That's not easy to do. And when you're not getting pitched to and still doing it, that says something, man. Yeah. I mean, how important was he going to be in your estimation to your offense in 2020? Oh yeah. No, Nick was everything, man. That dude just, uh, he, 
he's such a great teacher. He teaches the other guys watches at bats and he comes back and shares information. A lot of the times they can't even see what he's seen. When he comes back and goes, Yeah, dude, do you see his wrist? It's like cocked about an inch and a half over here on this breaking ball. And the guy's thinking, I'm just trying to hit the ball. Oh, what do you mean look at his wrist? So, but yeah, Nick, uh, he, he was, he was, uh, he's outstanding, man. The guy knows how to play baseball at a high, high level. And he put up those great numbers in 2019 at New Mexico State, and then he followed it up in the Cape Cod League with an outstanding showing there. Do you think that might have uh, quieted some of the doubters that said, oh, well, he's just playing out in a higher altitude, uh, you know, a different environment? It's not the SEC. But the kind of numbers that he put up there hitting about 350 in the Cape Cod League, do you think that kind of backed up his performance at New Mexico State? Yeah, I would think so. You know, I would think, uh, you know, Nick should have been on Team USA. He should have been the second baseman on Team USA. But, you know, I'm not picking for that team. And I think once they saw him play, I mean, and, you know, he's, he's playing against the best guys in the country and putting up the best numbers. You know, those are the guys that are in the big leagues for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of his power, he has it. In terms of the the contact and the average, he certainly has it as well. What do you think is his best tool from what you've seen from him uh, offensively? Um, He's just really disciplined um, at the plate. He actually has a plan. He's going to execute it. Baseball is a hard game. Sometimes you'll execute your plan and you're walking back to the dugout. But uh, over the long haul, when you can um, stick with that and – you know, and he just has unbelievable bat speed, discipline. It's really a total package. It's really special. Awesome. In terms of his defensive position, he's played at different spots all over the diamond. Second base shortstop is where he's played primarily, but some uh, scouts could see him playing in the outfield eventually as he enters pro ball. Where did you plan to use him the most in 2020? And where do you think his best position will be going forward? You know, Nick uh, spent the whole fall at second base. And then um, a week before we opened up, somebody kind of tweaked their uh, – one of the shortstops that was competing for the job tweaked his leg a little bit. So we moved Nick over there for a, scr- a three-game scrimmage. And I'll be darned if he didn't outplay everyone on the field and make every play a shortstop has to make. It was jaw-dropping. And I went back – we went back and sat down at the staff, and I said, is that our best shortstop? <laughs> and everyone said, I think so, and that's what we went with. And um, so Nick played short for us. He was going to play a combination of shortstop and second base, but I've seen him play third base. He can play all three at a high level, and as you said, he would be an outstanding center fielder. I've seen him run balls down out there as well. Wow. Uh, In terms of the number two overall pick, which is what the Orioles hold, conversations are more than just what he does on the field, but also the kind of presence he has off the field, Uh, his mentality, his work ethic, uh, his ability to lead a group of guys. You touched on it earlier, but what kind of personality do you think Nick Gonzalez has uh, and what he would bring to an organization if he were taken with the top three pick? This is so great that you're giving me the goosebumps saying those things. <laughs> because, because I mean, I, I've um, I've coached for quite a while and have uh, coached guys that have been taken in the first round and been top picks. And, you know, Nick, he is just the separator of, if he wasn't going to be a major league baseball player, he'd be a guest model. So <laughs> you want to talk about marketing. You want to talk about uh, his personality, his work ethic, his discipline, him getting down to the level of the other guys. He doesn't walk around like he's cool. Not in the least, man. He walks around like he's going to go earn something. And that's 
I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, for him, like I said, he's going to be playing in the big leagues for a long time. It's going to be a great a- asset to whatever organization. If it's the Orioles, it, he will be like a guy like Cal Ripken, who's <laughs> wow. a legend. Yeah, that's I mean, a- that's the type of per- that's the type of person. I got a chance to meet Cal in 1995 when one of my teammates, Brett Barbary, was playing for the O's, and we went back. Uh, we had won the national championship, and we were going back to the White House and went into a game. And by the way, Nick will make that yard look little. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. That's a perfect yard for that dude to put up some serious numbers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's – look, it's a hitter's park. Guys have been known to tear it up. So, Oriole Park at Camden Yards would be a great spot for a guy who's already put up outstanding numbers uh, in college. In terms of the future, you mentioned that you wish you could have gotten this guy for more games than you did in 2020, and it's unfortunate the way that the season ended, but boy, was he outstanding in that short amount of time. What did you expect from him in 2020, and did he raise the ceiling of your program uh, coming up in this upcoming season? Absolutely. I think he actually raised it uh, the second he got on campus, not just this year or last year. Um you know, from the second that guy got on campus, I think he's installed a work ethic that's that's hard to match. I've been around and seen a bunch of other guys work, and, you know, he's the leader of the pack. And, um, you know, what he means to New Mexico State baseball and the pride he takes in it. I mean, his um, his license plate says Aggie up. <laughs> I don't know. And, like, when you talk to Nick, you would think he's at LSU. You would think he's that like the pride that he wears on his chest and his heart <laughs> is really, really special for New Mexico State. That's outstanding, especially considering he is being talked about as a top five pick amongst guys who are playing in the SEC. And and it sounds like from from what you've seen from him, he deserves to be in that conversation. In terms of the program going forward, uh, all kinds of challenges, obviously, for every baseball coach all across America as they deal with the shortened season in 2020 and then new recruits coming in in the fall, obviously guys returning um, who can fulfill their scholarship as well. What kind of challenges do you expect to face over the coming months um, as baseball hopefully returns to the college uh, atmosphere? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is to uh, be safe. And I can tell you that New Mexico State is on the forefront of getting their student-athletes back to campus in the safest environment. And um, so that we're all, we're, we are, at New Mexico State, already in the major stages of planning that to make it happen. Um, so, you know, we'll wait. There'll definitely there'll be some, um, some changes for sure. And we'll wait and see what those ones are. I don't want to speculate on anything. I'm, I'm just excited uh, knowing that we're going to get back soon and, you know, we have a lot of unfinished business, so I can't wait to see the guys. I can't tell you how much I miss those guys on a daily basis. Well, we certainly have some uncertainty in the coming months, but we do know one thing. We will have an MLB draft, and Nick Gonzalez will come off the board pretty early on in that MLB draft. Do you have plans to watch the draft from home? Any kind of special uh, plans prepared for the draft? That pumps me up to even hear that. Absolutely, <laughs> we're going to be celebrating with Nick from afar, social distance. <laughs> Absolutely, my family. Uh, my, I mean, it's not just me. It's my my brothers and their families. Like those people are all aggied up. If you don't think that they don't know who Nick is and what he means to the program, they're up for opening day. They they follow, you know. So Nick has a lot of supporters, and you know, like I, I mean, I'll bet you all the little kids he went and read to during um, 
in January at the elementary school be watching too. He has fans all over, man. He, uh, you'll see. He he just he 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 just exudes all that uh, all that everything everyone wants a part of. Well, he could be getting a whole lot more fans in Baltimore if he is taken with that number two overall pick. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on Mass and All Access. We appreciate your insight into Nick Gonzalez. I appreciate it. Uh, Aggie up. You guys have a great day. That does it for the podcast today. Thanks, as always, to Hannah Broder and Bobby Blanco behind the scenes. And, of course, the Mass and All Access podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. We will be back in a week A week from today is the first round of the MLB draft, and we will have complete coverage with Masson All Access. Remember, stay home, stay healthy, stay safe. There's only one way we're getting through this, and that is together. I'm Paul Mancano. We'll see you later.